The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, stop cracking your tokens and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan, announcing show number 495 with guest Vittorio Bertocci, recorded live Saturday, October 24, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now, offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD in RTV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com And now, the man who says, two's company, three's a scrum meeting, Carl Franklin! Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's a beautiful fall day here in the United States. Richard and I are just back from our whirlwind tour of Europe, and we're on to Sweden, Las Vegas, and Los Angeles, the PDC. Hey, Richard, what's up? I'm battling the same cold you are, sir. Uh, I, I think we should all thank Sean Wildermuth for infecting the entire speaker core <laughs> that went on that European tour. Well, who knows if he infected us all, but he certainly got it first. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And uh, it's nothing to worry about. It's not SARS, and it's not H1N1. It's just a little little head cold. It's a cold. You pick them up. Hey, better than the last time I went to Bulgaria. You remember that? Yes, I, I had do, to go to the actually. doctor after that. Yeah, no kidding. I don't know what that was. It was that was something spectacular. <laughs> it was. But I've also discovered that uh, three conferences in two weeks and a cold actually can drive me out of a bar. Yeah, that's true. The last two days in Amsterdam, there we were just dragging. We were going to bed by 10 o'clock like good little kids. Although there is a video of me in Amsterdam somewhere playing uh, Ain't No Sunshine When She's Gone to uh, an Egyptian, a Dutch guy, you and Stephen Forte. <laughs> That's awesome. I, it, was a, in th- it was a thrilling uh, adventure. Well, anyway, let's uh, get right into Better Know Framework and start this puppy off right. All right. You're going to like this, Richard. You ever you had a multi-threaded application, whether you're creating your own threads or where you're using the uh, the asynchronous model or whatever it is, but you have a thread and you wish you could stick some data on that thread that only is accessible on that thread. Right. Yeah. Definitely. Well, you can do that with the thread static attribute. 
the system.threadStatic attribute allows you to, um, you put this on a static field. Oh, yeah. And, and then you can access it differently for each thread. In other words, every thread gets its own copy of that field. Cool. Yeah, that's it. So actually, I could push this to multiple threads, and they'd all be isolated from each other. Absolutely. So the idea is that, uh, and it doesn't matter, every, every, every single line of code executes on a thread. So even if you're not doing a multi-threaded application, you have a thread. And if you use system.threading. what is it, thread.current thread, or current, I think it is, it returns the, the thread that your code is operating on. Right. Within that, if your class that you're currently executing in has a static method with the thread static attribute on it, you can get and set the value of that within that thread only. Think about that. It's awesome. Yeah, that is awesome. Maybe you have a, a use for it. I can smell the gears of the listeners turning. Oh, I'm definitely thinking about it. And, of course, at the same time, I'm also thinking about all the conversations we've had recently about how threading is going to be done going forward with new libraries and that, in theory, we're if you know, who's, one of our, our uh, guests said, hey, if you actually say go spin up a thread, you've done something wrong. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't necessarily agree with that because sometimes that's the, a simple uh, solution to a simple problem. But, you know, uh, I think the point is is there that there's so many other technologies now for doing parallelism that you really ought to look into those before you try to roll your own. Absolutely. And I also think that, you know, the, the real statement here is there's multi-threading and there's multi-threading. The idea that you're going to fire off a background thread to do something, that's what this class is for. And it's a good practice if you have an app that that makes sense on. But this massive parallel environment that's coming you don't want to be spinning up your own threads for no, that. No, Hey, uh, who's yakking at us now, Richard? I have an email from uh, actually a good acquaintance of ours we've we bumped into many times, Robert Kane, whose uh, oh, yeah. pseudonym is Arcane Code. Right. Send us an email about 483. Uh, and he starts off the email so well. Dear Dynamic Duo of .NET. Ah. I always enjoy it when you throw a little love in the SQL Server arena, and Kent Tagle's show on SQL Server integration services was especially good. A long-time developer turned BI guy myself. Like Kent, I have been evangelizing the use of SSIS in the developer world through presentations at various code camps and .NET user groups. There is one point, though, that I don't feel was made entirely clear in the episode. It is indeed possible for a .NET application to run an SSIS package if that SSIS package has been deployed to the server. You would set up a SQL job in which to run the package, then call the SP start job store procedure from your code. I created a sample that uses .NET to upload a list of previous DNR episodes, then invokes an SSIS to parse them into show number, name, and dates in a new table. Sweet. And you can find all the instructions at shrinkster.com slash 1A7I. That's 1Alpha7Indigo. Now there is an alert listener. No kidding. Keep up the great shows and keep mixing in a little sequel once in a while. And hey, tell Paul and Kim the honeymoon is over. Time to get their podcast off the ground. Yeah. Come on. Let's do it, guys. Let's do it. Thanks Jesus. from Robert Kane. Robert, dude, I don't think you have a mug, but you got one coming now. And if you have any questions, concerns, ideas from shows, comments, or criticisms, send us an email. .net rocks at franklins.net. And with that, let's introduce today's guest, Richard, Vittorio Bertocci. Vittorio is a senior architect evangelist in the Azure evangelism team with Microsoft. After a few years in the Italian Microsoft services, he moved to the U.S. headquarters, 
where he spent the past four years helping customers deploy solutions based on identity and access management, SOA, and services. He currently focuses on all things identity, working with the developer community, large enterprises, and partners. Vittorio frequently speaks about identity at international conferences and maintains a popular blog at blogs.mstn.com slash vbertocci. That's two C's. Understanding Windows Card Space, the book on user-centered identity he co-authored, was published in January 2008. Welcome, Vittorio. Buongiorno, everybody. Thank you. Buongiorno. You know, you don't hear much about card space these days. Has it morphed? Hey, card space is uh, currently uh, being uh, integrated in what you may have heard, the Geneva Wave, uh, which is uh, really shining for enterprise scenarios. So uh, Carspace is definitely there. It's uh, much, much improved. Uh, it's uh, very fast. It's super agile. It's very, very usable. And it's very well integrated with enterprise scenarios. So, for example, now you can distribute cards with uh, group policies and similar. So, yeah, Carspace is uh, still very much alive and kicking. But very much an enterprise technology. We're not seeing the consumer pick it up much, even though it's shipped with with, with Windows. Right. And, uh, and now it's uh, really uh, designed to be integrated with everything else. Of course, there is still the, uh, the, the, the end-user part, but uh, it's mainly in, uh, for the Geneva part, is really shining for enterprise scenarios. Well, we spoke with Kim Cameron back in, what, 2008, I think, and then Barry Dorans again on OpenID and Cardspace. And I've always been impressed with the thoroughness and thoughtfulness of the architecture. But I think, as Richard mentions, um, get, you know, getting people to use OpenID and CardSpace for ordinary um, uh, online retail, you know, Amazon, eBay, that kind of stuff. I th- I don't think that's where this really is focused. And are we right about that? Well. I think that we will get there. Let's say that uh, it's a, a quite a big step because uh, starting from the mess that we have today of different protocols and of uh, people really not trained to think about their identities, what it means. Like uh, not a lot of people think beyond the username and password. Our identity is the attributes that define us, not just that. And as we go forward, I believe that you will see more and more uptake of this both because of the need of having something that is uh, more usable, like literally you cannot remember all your credentials, and at the same time because uh, the level of sophistication is going up. However, that's uh, a a process. Uh, You can't expect everybody to jump the shark in one single move. And especially (laughs) with card space, we had uh, these, um, how to say, these catch-22 in which we needed the client with all the various capabilities, but of course you also need the capabilities for the server side. So you need to enable developers to write websites that will accept security tokens coming them from CardSpace or from any other protocol. And then you also need to equip the identity providers, let's say the entities that know about users, to um, expose that knowledge through uh, standards. And that all means a lot of uh, nasty, low-level infrastructural code if you have to write things yourself. And in fact, uh, when we came out with CardSpace, 
All the examples that we had were of low-level WCF code. And of course, not everybody is a security expert, and not everybody wants to write infrastructural code. Instead, now that we finally have a Windows Identity Foundation for developers and ADFS 2.0 for identity providers and enterprises in general, we now finally have the means to enable all this knowledge and all this uh, capability to be unlocked and used in a simple fashion. So I believe that uh, from now on, we should start looking at what happens in this space. Because uh, before, we simply gave everybody the client, but not uh, the uh, server-side infrastructure. So it was uh, kind of hard for people to actually use this technology. So we've got a new foundation, Windows Foundation thingy that not everybody knows about, Identity Foundation. Uh, and boy, I hate that name. But how is this different from the previous things we've released, like Geneva? Uh, this is an excellent point. Uh, Geneva was a code name that um, kind of provided an umbrella for uh, all the new wave of products from the uh, Federated Identity Team. And it included uh, the Geneva server, which then got the official name ADFS 2.0. It included the Geneva framework, which then uh, got the name Windows Identity Foundation. And uh, it included uh, Windows Carspace Geneva, which, guess what, became Windows Carspace 2.0. Okay. So they are actually the same. We just happened, uh, like uh, every time in Microsoft, eventually it moved from the code name to the official name. Specifically, Windows Identity Foundation is uh, really something that I waited for years. And uh, now that I finally have it, uh, I am uh, as happy as a kid in a candy store. <laughs> this is actually an extension to what you would use in .NET for a handling identity, which allows you to do so in a completely um, platform-independent fashion. It uh, allows developers that are not security experts to tap into the power of the infrastructure so they can obtain uh, attributes, claims about the users without uh, having the, uh, the faintest clue about what's happening behind the scenes. And conversely, it allows uh, the security experts to take uh, complete control of every aspect of authentication, authorization, personalization. It just uh, decouples the, uh, all the handling of uh, infrastructural code, like, for example, nitty-gritty details of the uh, protocol that you want to use, or uh, things like uh, checking signatures, decrypting, uh, extracting and putting in the context the claims from security tokens, all stuff that uh, is uh, uh, Chinese for a lot of people, right. uh, it actually uh, gets made automatically. But if you want to have a hand, have a say about what it's doing, you can. That's to say that now there are specific places outside of your application where you can go, you can subclass, you can change the configuration, you can twist, you can decide how long your session is going to last, you, wanna, you can decide which claims you accept, you can do very sophisticated authorization. So instead of just saying, uh, is this user an administrator, you can uh, literally make decisions if the user is in a certain age range. And uh, again, all these can be done without touching the application. Everything lives in the pipeline in front of it. And 
the, this is really a point that I believe is super important. You don't have to understand anything of what is going on if you are happy with the default, okay. which is the vast majority of the cases. Because if you are writing a UI and you just want to make sure that you accept identities from a certain identity provider and you wanted to handle certain attributes, you don't need to learn how to use uh, the X509 APIs or the uh, Active Directory APIs, or you don't need even to know that you are using SAML. Those are all things that we take care of. We're salivating over here. You know, it sounds, right. sounds delicious. I would love to take a bite. So I'm a developer, and my security guy has somehow figured out how to configure this stuff, and it's probably going to take them a lot longer than it's going to take me. I can see that coming. So let's say... Walk us through a typical scenario in an enterprise where there's an identity provider. Let's say we want to do just some basic authentication between a couple of domains. And um, so the security people have gone through and, and, and set up the tokens and set up the servers and all that. As a developer, walk me through what I need to do. Perfect. So uh, first thing, you sit in front of your workstation and you log in. <laughs> Do you want me to start from later? Or no, that's fine. From, that's uh, fine. What happens when you wake up in the morning? Make it as complex as you possibly can, because it's obviously going to be a piece of cake. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So it's actually incredibly straightforward. You open Visual Studio, and uh, you can or open your existing application, assuming it's an SP.NET or a WCF application, mm-hmm. or uh, you just start from scratch. Uh, your choice. Uh, if you start from scratch, there are templates that are already configured for using claims-based identity. But uh, personally, I prefer the scenario in which you take one existing application because it really shows uh, the beauty of the simplicity of all these. You just uh, right-click on your project, and uh, you see in the menu that comes out in Visual Studio that uh, there are a couple of new uh, entries in your menu. And one of those entries says, modify STS reference. If you click on that entry, you will go through one dialogue that will substantially just help you to pick one specific identity provider, which in practice just means making Control-C on an email that you got from your administrator and Control-V in Visa. Um, Wait, you said modify STS, SDS, what are the letters there? What is it? Yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. I, I went ahead of myself. Uh, the terminology is a, a typical uh, identity jargon. SDS stands for Security Token Service. STS, okay. STS. This is a, a very special flavor of web service or even a, a page, which substantially uh, follows some kind of protocol, which could be WS Trust or uh, SAML or uh, WS Federation, and uh, it enables these uh, identity provider to publish information about users on demand. Okay. So you use an STS for requesting a token with uh, claims inside, and you perform these requests using uh, messages that are described in those protocols. Again, for the end developer, let me call it that, uh, that's just uh, in, uh, literally the matter of learning a new world, but uh, you don't need to go into these details. Like, uh, you just know that uh, you go into that entry, and uh, um, 
you just needed to provide a certain address in right. these um, in these wizards. This is what the security people will give you in that meeting that you dread going to, where you have to, yeah, they'll they'll give you a handout. <laughs> right, they'll just give you a string. It's a URI. It's yeah. it will typically be https slash slash name of your company slash the name of a kind of endpoint. And uh, typically, in an enterprise scenario like you described, these uh, would be uh, an ADFS uh, v2 entry. Uh, so that if you have Active Directory, uh, ADFS uh, v2, among many other things, uh, it puts uh, a uh, standard hat uh, on, let's say, your domain controller. So you are able to request uh, identities from your domain controller that are in, uh, for example, SAML format instead of the usual Kerberos. So it uh, elevates the uh, capability of your uh, identity management infrastructure to standard uh, uh, base. And of course, uh, I say IDFS because uh, I am a shareholder here in Redmond, but uh, if you'd ask uh, any of my counterparts uh, in uh, other companies, uh, we actually have approved uh, interoperability with them. So Active Directory uh, as a developer, services. you don't even know the platform from where those identities are coming from. You just get this address, you specify in this wizard, you just go ahead a couple of clicks, you see the list of claims that you will get from this user, and once you hit OK, your application will be automatically configured for you. That's to say that the system will go into the web config, will add the necessary entries for making so your app refers to the identity provider when it comes to identifying users, and from that moment on, when you hit F5, if it's a web app, you will get to the browser. And the browser will show for a split second your application, but then it will redirect you straight to your identity provider, which is the one that you specified with that address. The identity provider will, depending on your relationship with it, or give you a token directly, like, for example, in the situation that you described before, two enterprises, when you go to your uh, identity provider, if you are in your internet, you are already authenticated because uh, you are already in, uh, immersed in your Kerberos buff. Right. Let's say that everything is authenticated in there. And so you will get your token silently. If instead you are going somewhere else or you are outside of your internet, you are likely going to get a page where you authenticate. But it's the identity provider page. And once you have done that, you get redirected into the app and you are authenticated. So just to summarize, you right-click on your project. You choose this wizard modify STS reference. You provide the address of the identity provider. You hit OK, and from that moment on, the authentication of your app is taken care of. Like, uh, you don't have to give it another thought. Sounds like uh, making a proxy for a web service. Just put in the URL, click OK, and boom, magic happens. You are quite correct, sir. This is, in fact, very, very, very similar. That's to say that in the end, what happens is that you are actually doing exactly what you just described in the web service case. You are waving into the process, the mm -hmm. step in which you reach out for gathering this token, and then you use this token for calling. For the passive case, how we like to call the web browser case, what happens is that uh, you do the same, but uh, instead of using a proxy, you just have a redirect. Okay. Exactly like uh, when you do forms authentication, 
you just redirect uh, to one page in your own website, which is the login, SPX usually. Okay. In this case, you just get redirected to the page of the identity provider that you trust. And it's really that simple. Like, uh, you know that uh, we people in the identity, we really like to talk about the claims idea because uh, it's a beautiful idea. So we typically like to share it. But the reality is, with those new tools, uh, if you are interested in knowing more, you can certainly dig uh, into the claims idea and similar. But uh, if you are just interested in uh, getting the job done because uh, maybe you are a UI developer, so you just want to take, to take away from your, get out of your way uh, the authentication step, it can be as simple as those couple of clicks. You don't need to understand anything more than that. Okay, but that just gets us to the authentication phase. That gives us a token. Now, how do we use that token? And does that token live with us for the life of the application per user, per, you know, per instance? What does it authenticate, I guess? Right. So, so let's dig a bit deeper. The token that you get is typically per user. That's to say that uh, it is the user that goes to the identity provider, somehow authenticates, and gets a token that uh, describes that specific user. For what concerns the lifetime of the token, that is uh, typically decided uh, both by the identity provider, who is the ultimate arbiter of that. The token typically includes uh, one expiration information, so that uh, the identity provider says, yes, I certify that this guy has uh, three foot uh, long hair, but I can certify that only for half an hour. Because <laughs> <laughs> then he's getting a haircut. And after, after that, the token will expire. And um, then also the application, as I say, that to say that uh, the default is that uh, the moment in which you get uh, this uh, token, you drop a cookie and you create a session. So from that moment on, uh, the application doesn't need to keep sending you a token. You keep it uh, in your belly, and you refer to it. Uh, but uh, you can certainly have control about uh, the session that you created out of it. So, for example, you can decide that if the user is uh, inactive for five minutes, you want the session to expire, regardless of the fact that the token may last uh, longer than five minutes. And this is under your complete control. There is uh, a pipeline of steps in which this token is first requested. When you hit the application, the application will realize you are not authenticated and will redirect you following the protocol. Then once you actually get the token, there is one stage that where you get this token, you understand which kind of token you are talking about, SAML, X509, XRML, and you call the appropriate handler. We have a set of classes, the security token handlers. We have a all the defaults for the most basic ones, but you can certainly write your own if you want uh, to do something exotic. And there you will check the signature, you will verify the uh, duration and similar, and then you will extract the claims. Claims that uh, are, they are to say, statements about the subject made by the identity provider. So those are the facts that you want to know about the user. The answers that your application needs to get for or authorizing a user or customizing the experience, uh, and I'll say a bit more later. So you get this list of claims. Uh, you go through one stage in which you look at those claims, and you decide which ones you want to keep. So, if, for example, your identity provider is a bank, and among the claims there is a blood type claim, you certainly don't want to hold 
the banks are authoritative about that. So you will just ignore, we will stop the blood type claim there, and you'll just allow everything else to go forward. And then there is one last stage in which you can actually perform authorization on top of that. Remember, we are still outside of the application. We have yet to touch your custom code. And here, Windows Identity Foundation provides a hook. We give you a specific class, which is the Claims Authorization Manager, which you can subclass for injecting your own logic. And you can go from the most basic of things, like you can just replicate the classic ASP.NET authorization logic, or you can even reuse verbatim the same logic because we are compatible with the old model. So if you are using the ASP.NET is in role or the syntax authorization in the web config, it will work also with claims. Or you can use this class for processing claims for things like what I said before, like if you are serving content that for which you need to be older than 21 years, then here you can actually make the check. Of course, I'm talking about things like elections and similar. What were you thinking? So what sort of claims are we talking about here for folks who aren't familiar with claims? Claims can literally be anything. In the context of IT, the most common claims will be the one that reflect, for example, your position in your organization. So you can have claims that describe the groups you are a member of. So you can be an administrator or you can be in HR and things like that. So typically in a business-to-business, those are the most, most common kind of claims. But then they can also be pure attributes. Like, for example, you may have your name, your birth date, your shipping address. So things that describe you rather than tell you what you belong to. And then you can have, um, how to say, roles, explicit roles, and you can go as deep as you want. So, for example, in certain occasions, you may even have uh, permissions in the claims. Now, permissions are kind of a delicate point because permissions are typically something that are expressed by an entity that knows already about the resource. And the identity provider can often be very removed from the resource. In other words, if I'm accessing a certain SharePoint on uh, your organization and my identity provider here does not necessarily know about, uh, like, the title of the documents. So you cannot expect my identity provider to provide directly permissions. It will provide the descriptions of what it knows about myself, like uh, my role and the organization I belong to, and then it will be your system that will transform those claims into claims that are more descriptive, more useful of my access to the resource, because your organization knows about the resource. And that's one of the beautiful, beautiful things of this architecture, that this is just service orientation applied to identity. I'm sure you remember the tenets of service orientation. Here, everything strives to give you Autonomy. Everybody that uh, knows about something or about a resource, about a user and similar, has the chance of chiming in with its piece of knowledge without having to have uh, strong dependencies on others. So identity provider knows about users, it will talk about users. 
resource providers know about resources and it will express logic about the resources. And all this happens in complete independence. So the resource doesn't need to handle the credentials of the users, like very often today it happens. Today you see very often that you have uh, duplication, that you have uh, synchronization problems, that you have spread the uh, credentials of the same user around, and then once this user gets decommissioned, he can still access stuff around. So with the federation and claims, we solve that. But we also solve the issue of having to know from the source about the resources, because typically the resources change even more often than users. Think right. how often you hire or fire people and how often you change titles or location of documents. With all these claim systems, you can have everybody owning its own piece and everybody doing its own job in complete independence from others, which is just great. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, who bring you the Rad Control Suite for Silverlight. Are you already playing with Silverlight 3? Then you might have started using .NET RIA services, rich Internet application services, which make data operations a whole lot easier, especially for line-of-business applications. So check it out. Our friends at Telerik are again ahead in the game, tapping on the new benefits of Silverlight 3. Their Rad Control Suite for Silverlight now fully supports .NET RIA services and domain data source. So if you're wondering what's in it for you, the answer is pretty straightforward. You get completely codeless binding to RIA services, impressive validation support on the client and on the server. Your customer will also be pleased to sort, filter, and page data much faster as all data operations are now server-side. Besides, the suite also offers out-of-browser support, and as you might already have heard, the first commercial 3D chart. Check out the Telerik Silverlight suite at telerik.com slash silverlight. Don't forget to say thanks for supporting .NET Rocks. Okay, before we go too far down the Federation angle, and I want to get there, but I, I want to pull back to some more code-related things. Specifically, what does it look like to a developer to check a claim? So if I've got a guy who's got a claim of being in HR and I have an application that's only supposed to be accessible or say more a menu item that's only available to the HR people. What do I got to do to, to enforce that? All right. You made an excellent distinction. Uh, there is one point in which you just wanted to block the access to the application altogether. Like if you're not HR, I will not allow you to see the entire page. That is achieved using the mechanism that I mentioned before. You have one class, the Claims Authorization Manager, that typically look at your web config. In your web config, you can say, this resource, which could be the page, can be accessed only by people that bring this claim type with this claim value, where in your case, the claim type would be group, and the claim value would be HR. Instead, if you go all the way to the menu, what happens is that from your code, so fi finally we enter your application, you need to retrieve the value of claims. And that's really, really easy to do. So uh, if today you are a, a .NET developer and you want to know about the identity of your authenticated user, what do you do? You just go on the thread, uh, you get the current principle, and you obtain from that a I, I principle, which is a built-in interface in .NET, 
From that, you extract an AI identity, and there you will have information about the user with the I principle you make is in role. So with the Windows Identity Foundation, we build on the same mechanism. So the uh, I principle gets subclassed by another interface, which we call I claims principle, which is still living in the same place. So you can still retrieve it by doing thread.current principle from within your application. But you just have to cast it to iClaims principle, and there you will have all the things that you had before, like if you, still, if you wanted to call is in role, you can still call is in role. But um, if instead you want to use claims, you just extract the iClaims identity interface from it, which again, if you would have a normal I principle, you would extract an I identity. Here you have an I claims principle, you extract an I claims identity. This is exactly what you would be normally writing. But in the result now, you have a collection of claims that are completely agnostic from how you obtained them. It doesn't matter if, in, uh, if you got them from a certificate or from a SAML token. As a developer, you don't see it. And you just uh, um, query this collection, typically with a link statement. So, for example, if you are searching for the age claim, you just have uh, age value equal. And then uh, you could have uh, something like uh, from C in claims identity dot claims, where C claim type equal equal age, select C dot value. This nice. is a pure link uh, in its uh, easiest form, like that's the typical select that you would do in T-SQL. At that point, you just have your value claim, and you can decide in the base of that if you want to show that menu or not in a classic speed fashion. So now I started out thinking, oh, great, I could stay with is in role, which I've known you know, before even .NET, but I like your link approach better. That seems like the more modern way to go check a claim specifically or collection of claims. Uh, you, you make a, a, another very good point. Uh, is in role is familiar to a lot of people, and of course, of course, we had to, to maintain uh, its support because uh, in many scenarios, all you need are roles because uh, many systems today are role-based. However, with the claims, uh, you can be more sophisticated. So you have a choice uh, of uh, moving forward. With easy role, you would not be able to check, uh, like, uh, if uh, somebody is, uh, if somebody's spending limit is higher or lower than a certain threshold. Instead, uh, with the link thing that I just mentioned, what I extract is the value of the claim, which could be anything. It could be a date, it could be an int, it could even be a structured data. At that point, if I have a logic that is more sophisticated than that string matching, because in the end, is in role is just verifying that a certain string belongs to a collection, here yeah, I can do stuff that is definitely more complicated. And actually, complicated is the wrong term. I'd say sophisticated. That's to say that, again, I can have very complex business rules, like, for example, if the spending limit of somebody is X and uh, is a certain time of the month, because uh, we know that uh, a certain time of the month we are going to pay salaries, so our liquidity is uh, our cash flow in a certain condition. And uh, if the guy comes from a certain department, then X, otherwise Z. For all these kind of things, uh, typically, you'd be forced to do this uh, in, uh, 
in a way that is dependent from the kind of credential that you're getting. You'd be reaching out from various databases in your system so that if you take your application and you move it, for example, in the cloud, then you would have no chance of reaching out for these databases and similar. Instead, here we have everything that nicely traveling inside one compact token, and we have one single syntax that you can use regardless of the way in which you obtain this token. And so this empowers you to do more and with less dependencies, which, again, is the key of evolution. Like my, I, I hated to do prediction because there's always a chance that you are wrong, of course. But <laughs> I'd say that now that finally we have this tool, in a couple of years, I'm sure that uh, you'll see much more, uh, like we'll move it to the next level. That's to say that uh, today is in role uh, is the mainstream standard. Yeah. As soon as we have uh, these uh, more sophisticated stuff, uh, nothing will hold us back uh, from uh, actually having uh, like uh, more standard uh, things uh, in which uh, uh, you can express uh, more complex and more uh, descriptive policies directly in front of your application. And where this gets really interesting is in the in the actual federated side of things. The idea that I have uh, a contractor who's working in a different organization doing HR work for me, I'm able now to to give him some kind of identifier so he would have the privileges of being in HR without actually having to be part of my domain per se. Yeah, this is this is where I start to lose it. <laughs> <laughs> but this is the hard part now, right? That's exactly correct. Uh, as long as your user comes with uh, this token obtained by the correct identity provider, then uh, your application will just process the token and be blissfully happy about it. Now, you can chain the process of obtaining a token crawling through um, federation relationships. So your contractor that would belong to its own organization with his own identity provider may be in a relationship with your identity provider so that when the contractor lands on the page of your application, your application will redirect to its own identity provider page, which in turn will redirect to the contractor page. The contractor will get a token from his own organization containing a description of a whatever is needed for being recognized on the other side, will bring the token to the other identity provider, and uh, once it will, uh, uh, the system will uh, uh, run some transformation logic, like, uh, okay, I recognize you are coming from a, a, a partner, and uh, I will transform uh, your uh, um, senior, uh, senior inspector in my HR generalist, and then this person will be able to land on your page and use your application using roles that make sense to your environment rather than theirs, because your HR generalist may be associated to a number of uh, um, privileges of which, of course, the contractor original environment knows nothing about. And while it's completely obvious how this helps when you cross organizational boundaries, it's interesting to see that uh, it can work also within your own organization. So imagine, uh, for example, your HR department and the finance department. And uh, imagine all the classic uh, uh, permissions that you have as HR, so the HR generalist can see 
all the personal details of the people that work under his own care. And now imagine that there is somebody in finance that occasionally gets to make the controller function. So he has to verify, like investigate, that somebody is actually making a correct use of company resources. So expense notes and stuff like that. So this person will have to dig on a specific employees in the same way in which HR would, because right. he has as part of his investigation. Now, with this system, you can actually have sub-authorities, the authority for HR and the authority for finance that federate with each other so that that specific controller can be declared as controller by the finance and uh, you can also provide, uh, for example, the list of names of employees that this guy is investigating. And when he lands on the other side, the authority of HR can transform those information, like this guy is in the role investigator uh, for these guys, can transform those into uh, privileges on the HR department only for that people. So that when he lands on the application in HR, his permission will be exactly like if somebody is working in HR, but just for that people. Right. So you, as an application developer for HR, you don't have to worry about the special case of, uh, well, every time I get an HR employee, but sometimes I get uh, a finance controller. You don't. You just uh, go ahead with your business rules for HR systems, and it's the infrastructure before that that takes care of giving the correct claims to the user so that your application doesn't change. You don't worry about all those borderline conditions. You just execute on your business logic. And again, this is huge because the moment in which you start worrying about all this stuff, you achieve a level of autonomy that truly enables you to use all the possibilities we have around. If you now have to take, again, this application and move it to another data center, move it to another department, move it to a hoster, move it to the cloud, wherever you want, the logic comes with the application. And the fact that you didn't have to treat borderline cases, but you are purely on point with your business function, uh, enables you to do that with much less worries than in the past. Because you know what happens when you take one up and you change something. Typically, you get a call from a subsidiary on the other side of the world where somebody will say, hey, all my stuff stopped working, and you didn't even, you didn't even knew that that application was having influence on them. Right. Like this, we can finally break all those ties and have everybody just worry about its own part. But it strikes me that the challenge here is building the right claim that that finance guy shouldn't claim himself as an HR guy, but rather claim himself as privileged enough to look into people's personal data. Exactly. In fact, uh, once you get to the application level, then the claims that you will have will be describing your access levels or, anyway, the specific roles for that application. So these will not be an organizational point. And that's exactly the point. Like, the application doesn't have to worry about that level. It has to worry just about enabling the specific operations that we are giving. In other words, let's say that you are the developer that is writing the web service that is accessing the payroll of people. 
or uh, the history of their payroll, which is more uh, on the HRE function, right. then you need to worry about uh, how to protect uh, those uh, specific operations. So typically, you will expect something like uh, roles or privileges. This system uh, will uh, enable the finance guy to obtain those uh, specific uh, requirements without uh, you, web service developer, worrying about uh, trying to understand those. Like, uh, imagine uh, the, a word in which you just get username and password in your web service. From that username and password, you would have to make uh, some internal investigation, like uh, finding out uh, where this guy belongs to, finding out the fact that he's now acting uh, as an uh, investigator, finding uh, which employees uh, he is allowed to, uh, to call and so on and so forth. Instead, with a system in which you can uh, transform claims along the way, you can put uh, all these intelligence where it belongs to, because uh, it's uh, in, uh, an agreement between HR and finance that uh, an investigator should have certain powers for of accessing the backend. It's not a matter of the specific web service. It is something that is decided at the department level. And then from the department to the specific application, it's a matter of the application and the phone department to decide which roles have which privileges. Again, you are pulling from the application all the logic that you would normally have to write if you just have username and password, and you're putting it in the right places. So in the point of contact between the HR and the finance, you put the intelligence of saying yes. I have the notion of an investigator role, and I know what it means for my area. And then you get at the application level the notion of, yes, I know the roles of users of this application, and I know what are the privileges associated to that. So that you just worry about that as a web service developer. And instead, the administrator of the identity provider that lives in HR worries about managing the relationship with finance. And also notice the different competencies that are here. As a web service developer, you shouldn't know about, how to say, company politics or similar. You just do your job of writing the web service and handling permissions. The fact that the investigator should have or should not have a certain power it's something that leaves uh, higher, uh, higher up, like it's a negotiation between uh, the VP of HR and uh, all the people be- uh, below him and uh, the VP of finance and all the people below him, of right. course, depending on the size of the company. Like probably here, the VP doesn't care about uh, the business logic. But uh, you see my point. Like uh, with this, uh, you can actually bring the stuff uh, where it belongs to, that's to say at the organizational level or at the application level. Well, and this is a long way away from checking is in role and quote unquote HR. Right. <laughs> well, and you can still do that in a certain, uh, certain like for example, uh, there, there will be situations in which you still want to do it. That to say that uh, in the end, uh, all this chain may just prepare you to be able to just do that at your application. Like uh, at, if, at your application, if your logic is uh, I have to write is in role, that's fine. Uh, as long as uh, all the people that live around you did uh, their job so that uh, the people that uh, should uh, access your application actually get uh, that claim. So 
I'm, I'm still trying to envision the UI where the VP of finance calls up the VP of HR and says, hey, I need to get my guys investigating these people. And he's got a I'm trying to figure out what the interface would look like to actually go in and say, for this finance user, give him investigative privileges on the following employees. Is that something that's part of the the ADFS, the Active Directory side of things, or is that actually in the application? Right. Uh, actually, uh, I should really not have used the term VP because <laughs> I don't think that I would get any UI. I would have probably go to their uh, technical decision makers and tell them, uh, make this happen. Uh, the UI, as you correctly point out, uh, would be largely in uh, ADFS2. In ADFS2, you can establish a federation relationship. Let's say that you can say, okay, I want to uh, be able to accept tokens from this certain identity provider. So if you are an HR, you can say, yes, I want to accept tokens from the finance uh, ADFS. And conversely, you can also say the opposite, like, uh, yes, I am willing to give tokens to uh, when I'm asked to give it to that specific endpoint. So finance can consent to give tokens to users that are trying to access the HR department. And this is just uh, clicks. Like, uh, well, remember when we described the developer experience, the admin experience is very similar. You just point your ADFS to the metadata of the other ADFS. You make a couple of clicks and the relationship, bam, is done for you like uh, all the details that you were supposed to write in ADFS1, now they are all automatically done for you. So the certificates, the endpoints, everything is automatic. Then once that is uh, established, you decide which claims you want to send on one side, like a finance guy can say, okay, when somebody is asking for a token for going to HR, the things that I want to say about you are your group. So if you are uh, an investigator, it will show up in your group. I want to say your name. I want to say all, all the things that you want to say about the user in that context. Instead, when you go on the HR side, what you get uh, is uh, transformation rules. That's to say that uh, you know the set of claims that you are going to receive from the other one, and you can say what you want to do with those claims. So, for example, you can have rules that uh, when they receive a certain uh, a group that says uh, in the group in this group uh, this guy is uh, um, this guy is an investigator. Then uh, you can actually trigger those rules and add uh, different claims in the token that you will create, so that right. uh, you can actually make this mapping happen. But it's just still a complicated piece of coding here. I'm I want to be very careful when I build this to make sure that it's entirely data-driven because both the users and the claims live outside of my application and they're going to change. So I better build in my app the ability to go in and, and pick up the latest set of claims and then ask an administrator of the application, how do these claims apply to this app? So here it's, uh, I say, here for what I described, there is no code involved. This, uh, this is a purely administrative function. You are getting uh, claims from, uh, like uh, the way in which you transform those claims is uh, through an, uh, a claim issuance language, which is a scripting language. And uh, that's completely independent from the specific app. 
Okay, this is uh, between one department and the other department. Right. Then, in the application, you decide what to do with those claims. Yes. But uh, uh, you get uh, the latest claims uh, every time, because uh, when somebody comes to the application and needs to authenticate, it will obtain a token, and this token will always be fresh. Right. That's to say that uh, unless you are uh, in the context of one session, this token will be freshed. And at the same time, Remember uh, when I described uh, the experience uh, of developing the application? When you create a reference to the SDS, uh, you get the list of claims that you will get uh, from uh, this uh, specific uh, uh, identity provider so that uh, then you can actually use them directly. And uh, this operation also changes your config- the configuration of your app and provides a list of claims that uh, you are going to get or that you require in your application. So that uh, you can have a number of uh, automations. Like, for example, we have uh, one very simple example that shows uh, how you can use uh, controls for influencing the behavior of your, uh, of your UI depending on the value of those claims. The list of claims that you are getting is actually coming from the metadata of the identity provider. So you can actually have tooling that helps you in this, uh, in this respect. And if something changes... There is a, another entry in the menus that I described in Visual Studio, which is a refresh metadata, in which you can actually reach out and uh, redo the configuration so that if something changed in the list of claims, uh, you will actually reflect those changes in your app. So right. again, the tooling really helps you in this respect. And I'm trying hard to think through being able to deal with claims changing at the ADFS level uh, and not having to recompile my app to deal with that. So in my application, I'm, I'm able to go off and, and make a, a metadata request to get a claim set when I start up just to see, am I going to be able to operate? Like, is the identifier for HR still out there so that I know when to run the HR features? Uh, you could do that, but uh, that would not be something that you do at the runtime. You do it uh, at uh, design time. And here is uh, actually... Um, but Vittorio, the important part there then is if we're making major changes to claims, we are talking about recompiling the app. Uh, depends by where you are putting your, um, your logic. Because uh, if your logic is uh, just for access, that is right. that uh, you are putting stuff in your claims uh, uh, authentication manager, then you don't need to recompile the app. You just yeah. change uh, the, something in the web config. Yeah, this is always about granular rules. For me, it's all about do I pop the menu item or not? And and I can see us not thinking about being able to have finance do investigations on people. And so I got to go retrofit those claims in and then have the application deal with it. And I'm probably going to need a couple of iterations on that. So I'm just worried that uh, my app is not going to function correctly should uh, a security zealot get in there and mess with a bunch of claims. So I wouldn't uh, worry about that specific aspect because then uh, you'd have to have uh, exactly the same worry uh, when you are developing applications today because uh, if you are relying on anything like the Active Directory schema, then that would be exactly the same. That's to say that uh, you would uh, not expect uh, claims uh, to change that often, especially if uh, you are uh, taking stuff from your own identity provider. Right. Like if you are an HR app and you are getting uh, claims from the HR uh, SDS, then uh, if there is a major change, it's one of the things that needs to be managed exactly like uh, if you would do it for the, um, 
exactly as you would do it in a reactive directory case. So uh, claims are not uh, claims types are not something that you should expect to change very often, and when they change, uh, you should expect to know it upfront because uh, uh, what you said is a pure change management like for everything else. Right. But uh, there is something that improves because uh, you as application developer are decoupled from the changes that happen on things that you don't control. Like for example, if for some reason uh, you make a merger and acquisition and you buy a company that uh, does only finance, it then becomes your own finance department. So all these, these new companies has a, lot, a whole lot of different claims that uh, more or less describe the same things, but they are different. Right. Now, you can manage this change at the uh, identity provider to identity provider level. Right. So I should be able to map the claims of the acquired company to the claims of the existing company. Exactly, and that happens at the administration level. You as a developer are protected from that because you as a HR application developer, you are still dealing with the claims that work in the HR department. Right. So if a mapping needed to happen, it will happen even before it touches your application. Yes. So what you just mentioned about change management, you are definitely not worse than everything else in the company, and if anything, you are better, because uh, there are certain things that you should not worry about that finally you can afford not to worry about, like, for example, this kind of uh, infrastructural things. Yeah, there are bigger problems to worry about, but it's interesting in my mind to think for probably the first time ever, if I'm getting into planes-based security, I've got to talk to my security guys as a developer and say, look, guys, I don't want you to ever remove an existing claim. I want you to add to them. We may add more granular or we may change configuration, but if you pull old claims out, you break me. And that is, to me, a very new idea. Well, again, I see how you can... um it may be perceived that way, but uh, in the end, uh, this is all exactly the same, because uh, yes. the claims uh, are just uh, a way of uh, obtaining uh, answers to the, all the questions that your application has uh, about the user. Even before claims, uh, you were obtaining those answers somehow. Yes. You were or querying a profile, or querying Active Directory, or yep. querying a, a, a different database, or merging all these systems, like uh, maybe the user was coming with an X509, and uh, the subject of a certificate was used as a key for querying some database and so on. All those data sources, like the sources of truth, like we call them uh, in identity, could have changed at any moment with uh, no, um, how to say, with uh, no warning, exactly like uh, the one you are just saying, but wait yeah. a minute. More and worse, because uh, typically when you don't have a single way of obtaining information, but you are aggregating information from different sources, some of those sources may be very volatile. Like, for example, the profile that somebody put together for some reason that you are reusing for another reason, and once the primary reason goes down, then all your system will go down as well, and nobody knows why, because nobody realized that somebody was making an... Let's say an abuse of another system. Instead, here you have a clear tracing of from where stuff comes from. You have one specific acquisition point that lives outside of your application in which you get all the information that you need. So again, I would argue that now it's much easier because 
if you have to manage a change, you have uh, one single place to go, and you have a very clearly, uh, how to say, a way of troubleshooting what is going on, while in the current uh, situation, you are, sti- you are in deep, deep trouble, because uh, those changes can occur in many different places. You may not uh, be even aware of uh, where those places are or who the owners of those things are. So again, claims, if anything, are bringing some order in uh, a place where there is no order. You know, in short, I, if I were in your shoes, I would not be worried about that specific stuff. I would be relieved that finally there is somebody on point for making those changes. At the same time, since there is somebody on point, the probability of those changes to happen without warning is much lower. Because uh, now it's clear what you are going to do with that information. Instead, uh, if you are using a phone, uh, uh, let's say that somebody created a page with the phone numbers of employees just for one specific conference. Like everybody is going to that conference, and it's useful for the conference organization to have one page with those uh, phone numbers. And then somebody else starts using that page, making screen scraping for getting those numbers. I'm not making this up. I've seen this happening. Sure, yeah. And then this, uh, this page gets orphaned and leaves in the Internet for a couple of years until somebody decides, you know what, we have way too many pages. We need to consolidate. They start going through all these. They find this page. They say, hey, look at that. This is about a conference of two years ago. So, away. And they decommission the app. And then a number of other apps that were relying on that go down. Instead, here, it won't happen. And the point here is simply that uh, when people think about authentication, they usually think just about the, uh, about the credentials. Like, yeah, well, it's username and password, and now we have all these claims. Oh, maybe it's something I have to manage. Not really. It's something that you already had to manage before. It's that finally now you can have it in one single uh, nice package, and uh, you, can blame, you know where to place the blame when something goes wrong. Well, I think the challenge is building good code that fails well when there are security problems. Too many times I've seen apps where because you couldn't connect to the domain, the error message that comes up is still like invalid password or you failed to authenticate, implying the user did something wrong when actually the infrastructure is broken. And that, to me, is a well-written app would actually say, hey, you know what? I'm relying on a claim that I just went and checked my services, and that claim doesn't exist anymore. So there's no way, there's nothing you as a user could ever do to be successful here. I completely agree with you. There is always a fine balance between being descriptive and uh, giving too much information, like it's yes. a classic situation. Somebody is trying to break into your account. If you tell them that uh, they... Uh, that the password is wrong, but they didn't say anything about the username, you may be giving them an indication that the username is correct. But uh, apart from uh, these uh, little details, I absolutely agree that uh, the error messages today are uh, very unhelpful. And I believe that claims uh, can help with that. That's to say that now that you have a richer information, you can actually be more descriptive about and uh, guide the user to see if there is something that they can do. Or, as you say, uh, like get them at peace that uh, they really don't have uh, specific powers. Again, one interesting thing of claims is that uh, since everybody declares upfront what are the things that are needed for operating, you may uh, just prevent this situation altogether. In other words, right. if uh, your website is asking for uh, a, list, a certain list of claims from a certain identity provider, 
you follow the pro- not you but the, the system follows the protocol for you and reaches for that identity provider asking for a certain set of claims that identity provider will uh, if it cannot give you the new claims can actually give you a meaningful answer about that like yeah. uh, imagine this if uh, the identity provider would give you the token anyway ignoring the fact that you are asking for claims that he is not giving you then the application would be hit by that, uh, and would just uh, the application would not know why you don't have that claim. And the best it could do would be to tell you, you know, uh, I needed uh, this claim, and uh, you didn't bring it to me in your token, so I can't go further. But uh, instead, if you are going to the identity provider asking for that claim, the identity provider is the same that had the old claim before. So now the identity provider knows why it doesn't have the older claim any longer. So it can actually give instructions. Like, for example, let's say that uh, there was a, a breach. You know, sometimes it happens that uh, a bunch of uh, cre- uh, credit card numbers are stolen. Yeah. And let's say that uh, you are actually calling uh, a system that needs uh, a credit card. You go back uh, to the credit card company that has its own identity provider. You try to obtain a certain uh, security number associated with your credit card, and uh, the credit card system can actually give you a message saying, hey, we are really sorry, but uh, we can't give you this uh, specific claim because uh, your card number is among the ones that may have been compromised. So you have to go there, call this green number, and uh, we can uh, renew the card for you. Instead, if uh, we would be still in the old system in which you hit the application, and the application somehow tries to find out that on its own, then it may not have enough information to give you a proper explanation of what is going on and what you can do. So again, it's more and more about control. Control for the user, control for the application, control for the identity provider. Absolutely. Hey, Carl, you still there? Huh? Huh? What? What? Who's that? What? What's somebody <laughs> saying what? <laughs> I'm sorry, I must have nodded off. No, I'm. Oh, thanks for that. No, I thought we were having a really good discussion on getting to the. You guys were having an awesome discussion, however, thanks. completely irrelevant for the kind of stuff I do. So I thought I'd just let you talk. I think anybody who's really interested in this is probably uh, jonesing for it. So where can we <laughs> where can we download it? Where can we get it? Is it just part of .NET four? The Windows Identity Foundation is actually the, based on a, a .NET three point five SP two. So it can be used also with systems that are pre-Dotnet 4. And in this moment, you can find uh, you can find it under the name Geneva Framework. So you just go on your favorite search engine, which is Bing, of course, and you just write uh, Geneva Framework, and uh, one of the first results will be the uh, installation of SDK. Also, if you want to... Um, learn more about this, we have a number of examples and one training kit for developers that provides you with certain hands-on lab that you can work through for learning the ropes, but also for doing stuff that is more advanced, like delegation and similar functionalities. And again, the trick is that you just search for Identity Developer Training Kit, and the first result is pretty much always it. Awesome. Vittorio Bertocci, thank you very much for joining us for this hour plus. Thank you, guys. It was uh, really interesting for me. And we'll see you next time. Gotten Rocks.
.NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC Yes, I'm a, a tie boy Life is hard